Hey, would you join me in a prayer? Let's pray together. Lord, the words of that song take it from Psalm 6. Lord, I don't, you know, I don't know where everybody's at in here today. I know where I'm at. And Lord, we have times in our lives that those, those words are so fitting for. We're in a situation that we can't get out of, and there's we need help. And it's complicated. Lord, I pray for everybody here who's in trouble and the trouble is complicated. I pray that give us the help that we need so that as we open up your word and look at the Bible, you taught us, you told us the truth. We cannot, we don't get anything out of the words of scripture unless your Holy Spirit lifts it off of the page and gets it into our lives where we're lacking it, where we need it. God, I pray that you do that in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I mean, the the song painted a real vivid picture. You ever had a night where you cried so much, if you collected it all, your, you know, your bed would turn into a waterbed? You ever have a night like that? And that's what David's talking about. You know, when you lay down in bed, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to rest. But what happens when the place that you go to rest is like an ocean and you're treading water all night long, you know? You know, why do we cry? You ever thought about, isn't that weird? Isn't crying a little bit weird? Um, like you ever been around someone when they're crying and it, you don't really know what to do? That happens to me all the time. It, um, I have to say, uh, kind of uh, working with people the way that I do as a pastor, and sometimes having conversations with kind of staff members and all, you know all those. There's there's times I'm sitting together with people and we're talking about the deepest things of life, and it's hard when you're talking about some of the deepest things of life. You just I'll be talking with someone and you'll hit a moment, and there's a visual cue to me that we've struck a nerve because eyes start to well up. You ever told someone to stop crying? How, how well does that go? Have you noticed that you don't really have control over your tear ducts? Have you noticed that? Right? I, I've noticed that because um, you know how with your children, it's one of their special abilities. It's like a gift that God gives to children to tell some of your most embarrassing stories in the moments and with people where you'd rather not have that story be told. Have you noticed that? One of the stories that my kids loved to tell about me and you don't even have to have known us for very long for them to, you know, they just pull this one out. Um, it's a favorite memory of ours. There was a time period in the, I think the early 2000s where this young girl named Miley Cyrus was a popular kid's character. She played this character named Hannah Montana. Raise your hand if anybody remembers Hannah Montana, the best of both worlds, right? Then do you remember that time when Hannah Montana took it from a TV show and made a movie? Remember that? The, the Hannah Montana movie. So we didn't go to see it in the movie theater, but we did watch it at home. And, um, you know, there, you know the time in the movie. It's taken an hour and 20 minutes to build to this point, And then right here is the resolution of it. And Miley Cyrus and Billy Ray Cyrus are on the screen having this father-daughter moment. And I can feel it coming up. I can feel it. It starts about here and it starts working its way up. I can feel the pressure. I can feel my cheeks starting to get a little bit red. And I'm telling myself, don't cry. Right? 
Um, but you, uh, there's no valve for that thing. And I, you know, I, I started crying for this moment, and my whole family looked at me, and they saw this as the, as the best opportunity to mock and to ridicule me. <laughs> you know? So if you're, you know, now that we're out, now that I've told everybody, I've just, I've, uh, I've diffused them and taken away their ammunition. I, I cry at movies like that all the time. They get me all the time like that. Um, but why do we cry? And our tears should be a sign to us. I, th- I think one of the things that we should take away from that, it's a, it's a cue to us. Um, you're deep. Everything about you goes real deep. And, you know, we can, we can use personality tests and Myers-Briggs profiles and the Enneagram, and we can do all kinds of things to try to grab hold of parts of us that are, that are way down there. But you're deep. And tears come from a place that's real deep. And the reason why you're real deep is because you're made in the image of God. And God is so deep, endlessly deep. We shouldn't be surprised then if you're made in the image of God and God is so deep that he's unsearchable, you will never hit the bottom of him. You should not be surprised that there's a lot of things about you and your life, your mind, why you do the things that you do, the things that you think, where how many times you wake up, you know, and you just go, what, what is going on in me? Anybody here ever had a moment where you were looking at yourself in the mirror and you said, what is even going on with me? And you couldn't grab a hold of it. You're deep. And in Psalm 6, what David is, it's, it's incredible. David is going through an experience where those words of that song, the words that we're going to turn to, are his real emotions. That is what he's really going through and thinking. And he writes it down. Not only does he write it down, he gives instructions that these words of his are so important that not only are they going to get recorded and written down, they're going to get put to music and they're going to get put in the book of Psalms and his people and every, every Jew and every Christian ever since has looked at this experience that David went through that he recorded and put to words and even those centuries and cultures bridge this, you know, they create this chasm between us. We don't know what it was like to live in Jerusalem. Nobody here knows what it's like to be a king. Few of us know what it's like to go off to war. Anybody here wrestled a lion? If you did, I want to talk to you after the service. I'll be right down here. You know, there's so many things about David that you can't relate to. Except having a night where you can't stop crying. And being in a situation in your life where there's pain. And you have to try to understand what's going on here. Man, I want you to take out your copy of God's word. I'm excited to look at these verses with you. Let's let's turn to uh, the sixth psalm. And I'm going to ask that um, since this is the word of God, not just the words of David, that we stand to our feet for the reading of God's word as we honor it and cherish it. This is Psalm 6, and my Bible is titled, Oh, Deliver My Life. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the sheminith. That sheminith means eight, according to eight or according to the octave. A Psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. 
Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes, sorry, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant, David, who wrote this. He's a brother of ours. Everybody here who's been born again will see him in heaven. Lord, I pray that we would glean everything that we can, all the riches that are right here in these verses. And I pray that would you help me by your Holy Spirit to draw out the food here. We need to eat. We're spiritually hungry for you and we need to eat. And I pray that you would feed us by the power of your spirit and in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. David, just like you and I, is, he's stuck. We're stuck. There is just no way to get around it. And even though nobody wants it, nobody wants it to be that way, nobody would choose it, there's no day that you ever wake up and you go, you know what, I'm gonna, you know, if you had a, if you had a menu for the day and could push a button, you're like, you know what, I want, today I want an Affliction Tuesday. Let's have it be Affliction Tuesday. Who would ever hit that button? Nobody, Right? And yet, I mean, Jesus just said it frank. In this world, you're going to have trouble. How do you deal with trouble? If you know you're going to have a life of trouble, you know it, trouble's going to come into your life, what do you do with it? Do you know what to do with it? Or do you just avoid it? Pretend it's not happening? What do you do with your trouble? What do you do with affliction? And David, just like you and I, are, he's stuck right here too because there's no way for you to get out of affliction. Affliction is coming your way. The only thing that you have to do, you don't get to choose the life without it. The only thing you have to do is say, God, what am I supposed to do to deal with affliction? What am I supposed to do? And David gives us genius here in these verses. But I think that you can tell right here in this psalm, it's not easy. Because he starts off in the first two verses, and just like us, some of your affliction Tuesdays are your fault. I know your mom doesn't agree with that. I know that your mom thinks that affliction Tuesday is never your fault. It's always somebody else's fault. But you know, you're the one who lays in your bed at night, and you know there's some affliction that comes into your life that you're asking, you're saying the same thing that David is in verse one and two. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath where you know you're getting rebuked. You know, rebuking is a, sh- a, a strong verbal redirection. That's God saying, stop it. God, has God ever said stop it to you? And one of the ways that he says stop it to you is pain. Nor discipline me in your wrath. Does the Lord discipline his children? I mean, the Bible plainly says that if you're a son of a father as great as God and he's got plans for you as great as he has for you, you've you got some discipline ahead of you. There are going to be times when the heavenly father as a good father turns you over his knee and gives you a spanking. 
and it hurts. And nobody likes it. And nobody would choose it on Tuesday. So one of the questions that you have to ask on Affliction Tuesday, have I done this to myself? Am I being rebuked? Because I'm doing, I'm sinning, I'm holding on to sin, I'm doing something that's wrong. Am I being rebuked? Am I being disciplined? Is this affliction my fault? But then you can see in the, in the very same chapter, or in the very same psalm, he starts talking about his enemies. Verse four, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you, and Sheol who will give you praise? Verse eight, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. Because it is true that some of the affliction that you're experiencing on Affliction Tuesday is your own doing. That is true. But every Christian has enemies. This is just a a plain fact of the Bible. There is some of the affliction that you're going to go through where, where people and circumstances are working against you. And the reason they're working against you is not because you've done something wrong. It's because you're walking the righteous path. Walking the righteous path opens you up to people, ideas, philosophies, spiritual realities that are going to be working against you and attempting to afflict you. Can't you see the difficulty that you're in? When you wake up on Affliction Tuesday and pain is there, you've got three problems. One, it hurts. Two, am I responsible for this? Three, is this my enemies out to get me? And the Lord... The Lord ordained in giving us his word that we would have exactly the the verses that we need here. We would have a record of a man named David who would go through an experience like this and he would show us what he did. Because you're deep. And when those tears come up, it's not surprising that those tears need interpreting. Because there's a kind of person that gets into affliction when the tears come up Those tears are salty, and what happens is they turn someone bitter towards God. This is the thought pattern that comes into their life. They're unwilling to ask the question, did I do something to deserve this? What that requires is a repentant, soft heart. If somebody doesn't have that, they expect that they've been a pretty good person and bad things shouldn't happen. And when Affliction Tuesday comes and this person thinks about themselves like, well, I'm a righteous person and I I do everything just about the right way. I'm not perfect, but I'm definitely better than John in cubicle seven. And when affliction comes and the diagnosis comes or the pain begins or they look up at heaven and they say, how dare you? You know, have you known anybody like that? But that's not what David does. It's not where he starts. He said, okay, rebuke me and discipline me. Don't do it in anger. If this is wrath... But do you notice where does he go? Where does he go with all this? Where does he go with his tears? Where does he go with his pain? Where does he go with his question? Is this me? Have I done have I done it? Where does he go? He doesn't automatically go to his mom. And we all know why, right? Go to mom. Uh, he doesn't go to his friends. 
Remember, Job had some friends in a similar situation. Three friends weren't very helpful. Sometimes you go to your friends and they can't help you. There's one place that you can go because there's only one place that this affliction comes from ultimately. And where's that from? God. And David goes to God. Let me ask you a question. Is there there anything about these verses here about what David's going through that God didn't know before David said it? Like, was David like, Lord, I was crying all night. And God's like, oh, you were? I had no idea. I was taking care of things over in Africa. I'd miss things up here. Did, Did God miss it? Who benefits from opening up the deep part of your life and starting to put words to your tears? Who benefits from that? Does God get informed or do you have a chance to open yourself up to God? You do. See, over, over these, these weeks that we're looking at the Psalms, it's not just, hey, we're, you know, we, we want to draw out some Psalms. One of the themes that we have sort of each week that we're trying to pull the thread through is how you can have a meaningful prayer life by praying the Psalms. And in prayer, what's, what are we doing when we go to pray? When we go to pray, it's the deepest part of us You're deep. It's the deepest part of us meeting the depth, the deepness of God. And God in this psalm is complicated and David knows it. David is is praying to God this psalm and he continues to grab hold of and draw on God's own character. In verse one and two, when he's talking about being gracious to me, don't rebuke me, don't, don't discipline me in your anger and your wrath, what he's reaching out and grabbing hold of is the holiness of God. You do not sin against the holiness of God and take it lightly. God does not take sin lightly. And when you're in a time of affliction, the very first place to start is start cataloging and asking yourself the question, okay, Lord, am I in this affliction because I've sinned? Okay, now here's where we hit a problem. Because if now it's you and you're saying, God, if I've sinned here, I want to know it. There's one way that you can go wrong, which is to, is to appoint a special counsel named you to investigate yourself. You know you can't trust you to investigate you. Did you know that? And there's a reason why, because um, some of you are too harsh on yourself. Like, I don't know where it comes from. Some of us, you know, I don't say some of us like I did. I'm just the corporately. Some of us had dads or moms who were just wrote us and were on our case forever. And we got a mental picture that we can't do anything right. So as soon as it's like, you know what? I need to go searching in my heart. You, you might be too hard on yourself. And you're going to go looking meticulously. You know, I parted my hair on the wrong side. I'm sorry, Lord. Does anybody part their hair anymore? I'm sorry. That was, a, that was an old reference. Um. So some of you would be too harsh on yourselves, but some of you would let yourself off too easy. Especially if you've had a hard life. I can't tell you how many times in my teens and early 20s that because I had such a tough upbringing, you know, the first few years I grew up in a terrible circumstance, I was adopted from one terrible circumstance into a foster home. It got worse and then adopted. And it was, you know, growing up was hard when I was younger. Um, but 
I was also a 12 or 14 year old sinner and a smart one. And I could see that there were times when I could refer back to my tough upbringing and use it as an excuse for like, well, this is why I'm misbehaving right now because I was little orphan Sethi. And you should feel, oh, you should, you know. If you had a hard upbringing or you had a, you know, if you've suffered, one of the things that can happen is you can sort of go, well, because I had that kind of suffering, it's an excuse for me to sin. I'm sure God grades on a curve. The holiness of God has no curve. And you might have had a hard life, but that's no, that's not an explanation for your sin. It's not an excuse for it. Who is it that we have to rely on if we're going to go looking into the deep parts of us, looking to ask the question, God, is this affliction? Have I done something to cause this? Who's the only one who could really do that? I mean, David himself in another psalm would say, search me, God. You, you need to rely on the Holy Spirit, allow the Holy Spirit to inspect your life. Because Jesus told us, there's one person who's going to convict you of sin, and that person is the person of the Holy Spirit. When you're in affliction to go, okay, God, is there, am I the cause of this somehow? To open up and say, Lord, search my heart. I don't even know how deep it is, but you do. And since the Holy Spirit searches the mind and the heart of God, and the Holy Spirit is in you if you've been born again, then you have a special counsel who is perfect. He will convict you of sin. He will give you the ability to identify and feel, to go, oh, there it is. He pointed it out right there. And then as soon as he does, what do you do with that? Um, You confess it. Because if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from your unrighteousness. And I'm, you know, I'm afraid that in our, in our modern day and age, because we've made so many medical scientific discoveries, when we're going through something physical, when we're going through some kind of pain or affliction, if we're going through emotional pain, we call our counselor or therapist. If we're going through physical pain, we call our doctor. Now, those aren't bad things to do, but those things have to be done in faith, and those things have to be done as a secondary measure. The first physician that you should call, the first counselor that you should be reaching out to is the Lord God. Now, in previous days when people did not have as many intervention resources, they'd look to heaven. They'd see not only personal affliction, but corporate affliction. If a city was under, if, if a city went through a catastrophe, the people would ask themselves the question, God, is this from you? Is there some, is this discipline for us? Is this, is there something that we're doing here? Show us what it is so that we could repent and turn from it. But it's not that simple where you can always decide that. See, that was the problem of Job's friends. Job's friends thought, well, anytime that there's catastrophe, it has to be that you've sinned. But that's not true either. Because not all discipline, the Bible doesn't just use the word discipline for the times when God puts you over his knee and gives you a spanking. That's not the only kind of discipline there is. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus was disciplined And he never did anything wrong. So how are you supposed to interpret 
How are you supposed to look at your tears and open them up and say, God, what's in here for me? If you, if you put that before the Lord and you see, okay, I, I'm appealing to the holiness of God. Holy Spirit, search my heart. Show me where there's unholiness in here. I want to see it and I want to know it and I want to confess it. And if you, if you do that and then you move on to the next one. And the ne- very next thing that, um, that David calls out for is he doesn't just reach for the holiness of God. He also reaches for the compassion of God. Do you see in verse 2? He doesn't say, be gracious to me because I deserve it. He doesn't say, be gracious to me, how dare you treat me this way? He says to me, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. See, there's some people who, in their, in their vision of God, when I started talking about the holiness of God, he does not fool around with sin and you shouldn't fool around with sin. And when there's national catastrophe or when there's personal catastrophe, the first place that you should start is open ourselves up to God and say, God, shine your Holy Spirit into my life and show me where there's something unclean. What have we done? And some people are like, that's right. You know? But God's deep. He's utterly Holy. And if you're languishing, even if you're languishing because you've sinned, he's the kind of God that you can call out for grace, mercy. Lord, look at what I'm going through. Look at how, look at how badly it is and please be gracious to me. And I mean, David here in these verses draws together everything He draws together the tears and the physical trouble that goes with that. Where, you know, where can your pain be deeper than in your bones? You can't see him. And not only is his bones are troubled, he's, he's troubled all the way down to his soul. And see in verse three, he just he goes to God, and he, there's only one person he can talk to. How long, Lord? Who's in charge of how long Affliction Tuesday lasts? If Affliction Tuesday turns into Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, who's running the clock on that? Now. There's some people who don't believe in the sovereignty of God over suffering. Some people who believe that God would never, God would, no, God would never want to see anything like that. So somebody else must be running that. The devil must be doing all the bad stuff and God's doing all the good stuff and God's fighting to try to make more good stuff happen but the devil's fighting to make more bad stuff happen and sometimes you just get caught in the crossfire. I just want to tell you, one, that's not what the Bible teaches and who wants that? Where you're like, oh, Lord, look at my suffering. He's like, look, I'm trying. But the archangel Michael just, he's having a bad, he's having an off day today. I'll get back to you. You want that? It's hard, it is hard to look up into heaven and go, God, I know that nothing happens in my life outside of your will. So that Affliction Tuesday is part of your plan for my life. So then I can just, I know I can go to one place in prayer and I can say, Lord, how long is this going to go? How long? And you're asking a person who knows the answer to that? 
And David appeals to the holiness of God when he says, don't rebuke me and discipline me, but not in your anger and wrath. And he reaches out for the compassion of God when he says, God, look, I'm languishing here. Show mercy to me. He reaches out for the glory of God. In verses four and five, he makes quite a case before the Lord. In verse four, turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Not only because he's languishing, he, de- he definitely makes that case. God, I'm in pain. Please answer because of my pain. But he also points it back to God. God, all the nations around and all of my people know that I'm your chosen one. You have, you have covenanted with me and you've put your love on me. You've said that I'm a man after your own heart. If you let this keep going, the other people are going to look at this and they're going to think that you can't do anything about this or that you break your word. Do you want people to think that you break your word, Lord? Okay, now can't you see how close David is with the Lord that he talked this honestly with him about this and appealed to him? Lord, change my circumstances and do it for your own glory. And then verse five, he pushes it even further. Okay, Lord, if, you, if my enemies kill me or if this sickness that I'm going through, if I end up dead... Well, then I'm not going to be in the choir. And the volume of worship is going to go down by one. And is that really good for you? Can't you see how David's pointing it back to him? And then he comes back to himself. He's reached out to the holiness of God. He's reached out for the compassion of God. He's reached out for the glory of God. But in all this, he's reaching out for God. See, in verse four, I have the ESV. If you have the ESV like me, they picked a word here that's not quite, it doesn't help us as much as it should. It says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. If you have another version or the old King James, it says, return, O Lord. How can God return? Now, the Bible teaches us some things about God. It teaches us that God's omniscient. That means that God knows everything. This is one of the challenges even when we go to God in prayer. We go to God in prayer. Jesus, I mean, Jesus just taught this plainly. He said, your heavenly father knows everything. He knows what you need. He knows everything that's going on. He knows all of your thoughts. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows everything. And then we can have a logical question. Well, then why do I tell him things? (laughs) Not for him, not for his benefit. Because you need to get it out. You need to get it out. So God's omniscient. God's omnipotent. That's another one of the omni words. God's omnipotent, which means nothing ever happens outside of his power. Certainly other people are doing things and they have their motivations for why they're doing things. David's enemies in this psalm, they're wicked. David is righteous. His enemies are going after him because he walks with God. They have their own purposes, their own things that they want to do and those are their things. But superintending all of those things, nothing is happening without God's either express will, things that he wants and desires, or things uh, that are part of his overall sovereign plan. Things that won't ever be in heaven, 
because God doesn't desire them. They're not in line with his character, but he writes the story of our redemption using the sins, the failures, the brokenness, the evil, the wickedness. All of that is somehow in his manifold wisdom a part of his overall story. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. But one of the other things that the Bible tells us is that he's omnipresent. There's nowhere that he's not. There's no square inch that you could ever get into anywhere, ever, that he's not there. So how could David ask him to return if God's omnipresent? And in the Bible, there's... Okay, I I know you might be sitting there thinking, wait a second, but um, he's not in hell. Is he not? I'm with R.C. Sproul, to me one of the great theologians of our century, who says that the worst thing about hell is the holy presence of God there. It's torment. But his face isn't there. And see, David, he knows this. He understands that God is omnipotent. You can never get away from him. This is why even people who say, I don't believe in God, I reject God, his unstoppable presence even to them, is a, it's, a, it's a constant source of frustration and irritation because they can't get away from him. But his, his presence, his royal presence, his, you know, his omnipresence everywhere is something totally different than his, than his eyes being on you than his ears listening to you, than his face, him being personally open and attentive to you. You can lose that. There's nowhere you can go to get away from his royal, holy presence. But you can lose a sense of closeness. And so when David says, return to me, he understands that the solution to every single thing that he's going through his physical pain, his sickness, his tears, his emotional pain, his enemies who are seemingly getting the upper hand on him, the one solution to every single one of those problems. Lord, if you were here. And we know that because he finishes out the psalm. And something's happened to him. In verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. What happened? In, I mean, just a few verses, he's crying out, God, look at me down here. And a few verses later, to all the Lord's heard my, the sound of my prayers, my weeping. The Lord's heard my plea, the Lord accepts my prayer. My prayer made it through. He heard it. Because look at verse 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. He's saying that's going to happen in the future. It hasn't happened yet, but I don't need that to happen right now. The thing that I needed more than anything else is not for my enemies to be taken care of, not even for my tears to stop. The thing I needed is to know he is hearing me. It's getting through. Um, Okay, so 
anybody who knows me knows I don't like wearing tennis shoes on the stage. I hate it. I hate everything about having to wear these shoes. But man, for the past three months, I just cannot shake this back thing that I've been going through. And uh, last week, Pastor Zach preached, man, it's such a gift to have guys on our staff who can communicate like Pastor Zach can. I'm so grateful. Um, He told you guys that I was out of town on vacation. I was supposed to be out of town on vacation, but instead I was just getting out of the ER. Because, I, man, this back thing, I just cannot seem to shake it. And I got to tell you, it was um, in the plan of God, the sermon that I was going to preach this morning was basically putting to words what it's been like for me for weeks now. Lord, how long? You know, how long? And during those weeks, I've had to live this psalm out. God, is what? All right, Lord, shine, shine your Holy Spirit into my life. Is this sickness that's going on for me? Are you, is this you disciplining me, rebuking me? Have I done something? And man, that, that verse, I can't tell you how many times in the middle of the night when I've been in pain or I can't get back to sleep or I feel like things are getting worse and worse or there's you know, a, a doctor or this treatment where all the things that people are trying, they just don't seem to be making any difference. And I can't tell you how many times in verse two, I've just said, Lord, be gracious to me. But honestly, at the end of the day, the one question that I've had is the one thing that David is getting at. It's the very same thing that every single person here needs more than anything else in the middle of our affliction is to recognize the most important thing in our lives is having the closeness of God. And any time that the Lord God takes you or I into an affliction, for every single one of us that's been born again, we can always know one thing. Paul told us in Romans chapter 5, he told us that we have to, we're supposed to have a certain mindset about our affliction Tuesdays. And it is ridiculous. The Apostle Paul tells us that when we hit Affliction Tuesday, what our internal response ought to be is exulting. Do you know how powerful of a word exulting is? It's a combination of like an emotional explosion of spontaneous overjoyment, a celebration that comes from deep inside of us. We're supposed to rejoice at the fact that we're going into affliction. Why? Why would anyone rejoice at affliction besides a psycho? (laughs) It's his favorite method of bringing more glory into our lives. You know, that's the one thing that we're missing. Because this is where the, the truths of Christianity, the rubber, you know, the metaphorical rubber meets the metaphorical road. 
Because there's, I mean, I, frankly, there's lots of sermons, lots of churches, lots of books. You can go to Barnes and Noble and scan the Christian life section and there is plenty of self-help advice. The Bible has all kinds of wisdom for how you can handle your finances better, how to parent better, how to father better. And listen, the Bible does have a lot of that stuff. That's totally true. But the Bible has a vision that's either true or it's not. Either the world of revelation, heavens, thrones, gold, angels, glory, either that world is true and that is what God is doing or it's not. And the Apostle Paul was bold enough to be honest. If not, if that's not really what's coming, then get out of Christianity because otherwise it's stupid. Why would anybody give up anything, sacrifice anything, share your stuff, be in a small group with someone that's annoying? Anybody here? No, I'm just kidding around. No, I'll do that. Why would you slice 10% of your income and give it to the church? Who would do that? How does that make any sense? When Jesus says, you know, come, if you're going to come to me, you got to come and die. What you're you're going to carry your cross every day. Nobody would tell you that that's a great plan for how to kind of lay in your deathbed and go, you know what? I did life the right way. It's dumb. It only makes sense if it only makes sense if there's if one thing is true, that Jesus rose from the dead, the firstborn. He's the king of heaven. And the God who made the very first heavens and earth in the book of Genesis, that before sin infected it, it's, it is so, it's beautiful beyond our imagination. The God who brought that one has made a perfect one that's going to go on forever. And you can be there. But you can't be there like that. I can't be there like this. And God knows that. And the Holy Spirit has been sent into your life precisely for the purpose of doing the work in you that has got to be done to make you holier than you are now, to bring more of his glory into your life than you have now, to prepare you so that when you walk around heaven, the archangel Michael will look at you and go, yeah, you fit here. But it ain't like you are now. And affliction is God's special hand. It's his special way of putting his hands on you. It's his special way of putting his hands on me. Breaking us up open and saying there's more glory in here. I ain't done yet. That's the only reason why the Apostle Paul could persuade you He could tell you the Holy Spirit has to persuade you to say when you hit Affliction Tuesday, what should be happening on the inside of you, you should be exulting. We rejoice in our sufferings because our suffering is producing something. It's producing patience. And you know that patience is the thing that you don't have. Am I wrong? I didn't get an amen there. Okay, fair enough. All right, maybe I'm getting close to home. Page some we don't have.
So we've been going through the Genesis series that led up to this one. We've seen, I think we've seen it over and over again. What's the human condition? What do we lack? We lack patience. God makes these promises. All these things I'm going to give you. It's going to be wonderful. Trust me. And we go, no, I want it now. And Adam and Eve did it. And all these trees are good for food, he said. This one right here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not yet, no. What do we do? What did Adam and Eve do that, and they represent us perfectly because if you were Adam and Eve, you would have done exactly the same thing because you're just like them. What do they do? Give me that now. I mean, the whole, I mean, just over and over again, what we see in the book of Genesis is God saying, wait, trust me, I'm going to give it to you when you're ready for it. We go, no, I want it right now. All of us that raised kids, wasn't that basically the first five years? Wasn't it just the word no over and over again? Mom, can I have ice cream? It's eight o'clock in the morning. No. Some of you are like, wait, you're supposed to say no to that? Yes. Mom, I don't want to go to school today. Can I stay home? No. Can I have dessert for all three meals? No. Then they get to be teenagers. They're 14. Can I drive the car? No. But you get to drive the car. That's right, because I'm older. And see, this is... The Bible says so many things about what good fathers do to their, to their children. They discipline them. They say No. And it's, and it's good. And our affliction so many times is God's way of saying, no, no, not yet, no. Okay, last thing and then we're going to wrap up. How is it that David said, don't discipline me in your wrath and your anger? You and I have something that David didn't have when he wrote that psalm. He didn't have it totally clear in his mind. If you're a Christian and you've been born again, how can you know that no matter how much pain you're going through right now, that it's not God's wrath and it's not God's anger? You don't have to go search in your heart to get, okay, Lord, show me, is this your wrath and anger? How, how do we know we can rule that out automatically? How do we know it's not his wrath and his anger? Because that already happened. On the cross, all of God's wrath and all of God's anger for all the sins of all of his children were poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's how we can be assured. God, this isn't your wrath and this isn't your anger. It might be a spanking. That's true. I don't know how many people I've offended by using that. But it's in the Bible. It's easy. I mean, not for the kids. Um, all of his wrath, all of his anger poured out on his son. And the Bible says that Jesus wasn't a victim of it. That he rejoiced in his suffering. He exulted for the joy set before him. He looked at the cross and he said, I'm going to endure that cross because I can look past that cross and I can see the glory that's on the other side of it. And isn't it glorious? 
And right now he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, robed and clothed in majesty to reign forever and ever in the heavenly realm and in this one. So if you, I don't know if you're in affliction. Get out Psalm 6 this week and just work. Okay, Lord, I've got to deal with you about what you're bringing into my life. And I have to interpret these tears. They're too deep for me to grab a hold of. But one thing that I can know, if if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Your heavenly father might be disciplining you out of love, but there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the only question you have to ask, are you in Christ? Are you one of his children? Do you have an eternity in heaven that this affliction is preparing you for? See, for the righteous, we have a perspective on affliction. A little suffering now, a lot of pleasure later. If you're not one of his children and you're outside of Christ, a little bit of pleasure now, eternal affliction that will never end. Can I appeal to you and urge you? There is no sin worth holding on to and rejecting the fatherly, saving, cleansing love of the blood of Christ. Come to Christ. Would you stand to your feet? Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray anybody here who's going through affliction, I know that the prodigal son was suffering and his suffering and pain is part of what you use to bring him home. I pray for anybody who's going through an affliction and the affliction is actually the circumstance that is bringing salvation into their lives. I pray that today, if they hear your voice, they would come to you right now and repent and turn from their sins and embrace you with saving faith. And Lord, I pray for all the Christians here and I pray for me too. God, and you discipline us. We need it. We don't, we're foolish. We don't know enough. We're not grown enough. There's more glory in here. Put your hands on us and glorify us even more through affliction. But Lord, please be compassionate and merciful. We're weak and we can't take very much. I'm so thankful you're a God of holiness, a God of compassion, a God of sympathy, and a God of glory. Glorify your name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.